morning. I'm delighted to be with you all and to get to worship with you. And I bring greetings from my family in Austin, Texas. We have some delicious Tex-Mex waiting for you if you want to visit. Today we're reading a passage, and I, I, in order to get into this passage, I need to know how many of you, and you, got, you can be honest because you're in a group we can trust, how many of you are binge watchers of television shows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great, isn't it? You just get it on and it loops through and you don't even have to do anything. It just goes to the next one. But I think one of the things we lose by binge watching is suspense. When we used to have to wait a week to see the next episode, there was something about the thrill of that week waiting to see what would happen and then sitting down at the appointed time. The passage we're going to read has that suspense built into it. So I need to set, up, set it up with you. For me, my favorite version of this is previously on the West Wing. right? So previously in Genesis, Jacob and Esau have had strife in their brotherly relationship from the beginning. Any of you who have been to Sunday school in your life know that Jacob stole the birthright and the blessing from his older brother Esau. Their father Isaac was supposed to pass on to the elder a birthright, which is an inheritance, and a blessing, which in the ancient world meant an awful lot. If you got the blessing of your father, it's supposed to last for the rest of your life. Jacob steals both of those. He's a swindler, a cheat, and by the time he steals the blessing, his brother Esau has murderous rage at him. So Jacob, with the help of his mother runs away and goes to a distant land called Haran, where he is for 14 years, building his family and his fortune. Now it's time to come back home to the promised land. And Jacob is scared, because the last time he saw Esau, it wasn't an exact, exactly a friendly face he saw, right? Last time it was murderous rage, but it's time to go home, so he, he takes his whole entourage, he takes all of his possessions, and he starts back toward the promised land. He expects Esau still to be enraged. Let's listen together for the word of God as we see the moment of their reunion, this charged moment of scripture. Now Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming, and 400 men with him. So Jacob divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He, he put the maids with their children in front and then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went out ahead of them bowing himself to the ground seven times and he, until he came near his brother Esau. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they both wept. When Esau looked up and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? And Jacob said, well, these are the children whom God has graciously given to your servant. And then the maids drew near, they and their children and bowed down. And Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And finally, Joseph and Rachel drew near and bowed down. And Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, uh, to find favor with my Lord. But 
Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I find favor with you, then accept my present from my hand, for truly to see your face is like seeing the face of God, since you've received me with such favor. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The year was 1995, and I was sick and tired of writing a dissertation. I was sick and tired of checking footnotes, of looking at another book, of finding out who was not happy with my last edition, of meeting with my advisor, of reading that one important verse one more time. I was sick and tired of writing my dissertation. I had been a PhD student for too long at that point, and I just needed to get away. And so I got up in my got into my beat up old sedan with an okay sound system and did something that I rarely do even now. I turned on pop music. Pop music wasn't great in 1995. I don't know if any of you noticed. It wasn't a great year, but I started hearing obscure Michael Jackson and obscure Boys to Men, and I, I was listening, and, and I, it was just supposed to get my head out of the library. So I'm driving up the Connecticut coastline, right up Long Island Sound, and listening to music and just kind of bopping around and feeling a little rebellious. And then as I got into full swing, a song came on the, on the radio that just stopped me in my tracks. It said, What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. Now, I wasn't exactly running away from God like, you know, like Jonah when God called him to Nineveh, God didn't need to send a whale to me, but I was running away from writing a dissertation kind of about God. And in fact, when you write a dissertation and it's on one verse of the Bible and you're mostly in ancient Greek and Roman literacy, there's not a lot of God in that at the moment. So I had been running away in a way from God and on came this song, What If God were one, Was One of Us? And then the next line just froze me. If God had a face... What would it look like and would you want to see it if seeing meant that you would have to believe in things like heaven and in Jesus and the saints and all of the prophets? If God had a face, what would it look like? Now, isn't that a primary human question? Isn't that a primary human question? If God had a face, what would it look like? Now, we've gotten that question answered by children of all, of all times with a, a white-haired, bearded man sitting on the clouds or more recently and beautifully uh, a, a kind of salt-and-pepper-haired woman sitting on the clouds. It's, it's been captured in cinema by George Burns in Oh God, by Morgan Freeman in Bruce Almighty. We put faces on God in popular culture. 
But it is a central question for humans. What does the face of God look like? In fact, in fact, the history of religion can be charted on what each group thought the face of God looked like. Think about it. There have been throughout history groups of people, religions, that have for times in their history seen God primarily as God the warrior. God who fights on our side. Israel had times of this. All of the nations around them had times of this where they they co-opted the gods as their power that would win the war for them. We'll see it in a couple weeks in the Super Bowl, right? The Crusades were fought with, with God on their side. And sometimes in our politics, we see two sides, both of whom think they have God on their side. Lincoln famously in the second inaugural said, we all read the same Bible as the Civil War rolled on, right? This warrior God, this this war God is one of the faces of God that's made its way throughout history. And there's a second one. The second one is a God of judgment. This God looks scrutinously at everything we do and counts it as good or ill. Have any of you seen the show The Good Place? On television, the good place is a, it's an interesting study of kind of heaven and hell. And heaven is the good place, but it turns out that they can't find anybody good enough to be in the good place. As the plot goes, it's worth watching. The, the judgmental God is there to disqualify on demerits. The judgmental God scrutinizes our lives and throws us out or demerits us for the things we do wrong. John the Baptist thought Jesus was going to come and roll heads so that the righteous people would be on top and the unrighteous people would be on the bottom. Puritans were big on the judgmental God. H.L. Mencken once, said, once defined a Puritan as somebody who's scared that someone, somewhere, may be having fun. Right? The Puritans are big on the judgmental God and we get Nathaniel Hawthorne in the Scarlet Letter. So we've got a warrior God and we've got a judging God, and then we've got the inquisitor God. If the judging God was about what we do, the inquisitor God is about what we think. You've got to have exactly the right belief set. You've got to believe the right things, say the right things, or you get the demerits in this system. And this God is the one who runs the Inquisition. This is the one who, you know, people not only got thrown out of church, they got tortured and even killed for having wrong views during the Inquisition. And for a long time, and in a lot of places, this has been the face of God, including, and let's go back to it, including in our current time when I know people who don't imagine that the folks who disagree with them politically are even human, right, on both sides. Because they don't believe the same things, because they say wrong things. So we have a warrior God, and we have a judging God, and we have an inquisitorial God, and then comes our passage of the morning. Did you hear it? Jacob is worried sick. In fact, how many of you remember vaguely a story of Jacob wrestling with God in the night? Anybody remember that story? It's kind of a famous one for Sunday school again, right? Jacob's wrestling with God in the night comes the eve of this reunion with Esau. Right in the chapters before. And you know why? Because he's very worried. The last time he saw Esau, Esau was raging mad, was about to kill him, and he fled by the skin of his teeth. He he made it out, right? 
So he comes back scared about this reunion. He throws bribes in front of him. All of these gifts go out in front of the entourage because he wants to make sure that Esau knows that he is ready to to buy back his favor. Esau the angry is all that Jacob can imagine, and frankly, he deserves it. He was a bad brother. He was a schmuck, right? But here they come, entourage in tow. They're coming up to Esau, and there are 300 men with him. What What does Jacob think those men are aligned to do? Come and get him, right? Esau and a bunch of men are coming, Jacob shivering, and Esau runs out in front of his men and throws his arms around Jacob and embraces him and kisses him, and then they weep. And how does Jacob respond? He says, when I look at your face, I see the face of God. Now, does Esau's face look like the warrior God in this moment? Nope. Does Esau's face look like the judgment God? No. Inquisitor God? No. Esau's face looks like a reconciling God. A God who forgives even heinous things and welcomes his brother back. When Jacob sees the face of God in Esau, it is a turning point in the scripture. Remember now, we're in Genesis 33. The book has just begun. It's a good book. We ought to keep reading, but it's just begun. And at chapter 33, Jacob says, I don't know what God looks like. I don't know what God looks like. And then he sees this Esau come and forgive him, reconcile with him. And he says, that must be what God looks like. And you know what's funny? I think Jesus knew this passage Very well. Think about the story of the prodigal son. I think Jesus cribbed part of the story of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son, from this passage. Look how similar they are. Prodigal son, the boy, the younger son, takes the inheritance of the family and goes off and squanders it in a distant land and comes back thinking everybody's going to be mad at him. Right? This one's more familiar to us than Jacob and Esau. So the younger son goes off, squanders the inheritance, looking, looking he doesn't, didn't do as well with his money abroad, but he, he took the family money. He came back thinking that rage was going to be waiting for him. I'll say, can I still just be a slave in your house? And his father comes sprinting off the, off the porch and throws his arm around him. There's even an, an older brother in the story. I think Jesus knew the Jacob and Esau story. I think he used it as he crafted his own great story about the love of God, which for him looked like a forgiving father, not a forgiving brother. But notice what they have in common. They had every right to be angry and unreconciled. They had been wronged terribly. And they decided to lay those things aside in the name of welcoming back brother, son, Jacob saw the face of God in it. And Jesus showed the face of God in it. And that raises for us, as faithful people, the question, so what am I doing lately in my imaginings of the face of God, and what am I doing lately in my living of the face of God? How many of you have somebody right now with whom you're not reconciled? You're not very trusting of me. It's okay. 
You don't need to raise your hand. If I did the you know, head down thing and everybody raised your hand, I'd get more. We have unreconciled relationships. That person you haven't talked to in a long time because something happened and you think they're angry at you or you're angry at them somehow. The face of God comes into that relationship and does what? It finds a way to bring you back together. Reconciling God shows up in Esau. Reconciling God shows up in the father of the prodigal son. Reconciling God shows up in us. In these polarized times, that sort of reconciliation stands out like a bright star in a dark night. Last week, just appeared on my news feed, you know the name Brett Bayer from Fox News. Brett Bayer is one of the sort of show hosts from Fox News. And he and his family got in a car accident in Montana. And it was kind of scary. And so the troopers came out and took care of them and everything ended up all right. But it was a scary one. You know the name Rachel Maddow? She is an all-star on MSNBC. Now, the two never meet, right? Brett Bayer is on Fox News, which is on this side of the world. And then, then Rachel Maddow is over here and the two are, are supposed to be bitter enemies Rachel ordered pizza to send to the state troopers in in Montana who helped that family. And then Brett got on Twitter and tweeted back to her. That was awesome. And now they're in this sort of Twitter love fest. Fox News and MSNBC. When that kind of thing breaks out, you're thinking that must be the face of God. Right? When people who aren't supposed to come together come together, we recognize it as God must be here. God must be up to something. And we know it in our lives. And it becomes a little bit the job of church to show it in our lives. It becomes a bit bit to be the job of church to be the reconciling people. The people who break down walls that keep people apart in our own lives, but also in the lives of people around us. We become the face of God when we live out God's reconciling character. To which he calls us. Paul calls God the God of reconciliation. And that fits, doesn't it? I'm a Hamilton guy. Some of you know that from the way I talk. I'm a Hamilton guy. I loved the soundtrack when it came out in 2015. We memorized it as a family that Christmas. It became kind of a mainstay in the way that we think about things. Hamilton the musical on Broadway, but we never went. We couldn't figure out a way to get to the thing. First it was outlandishly expensive, and then we couldn't get time when it wasn't. Finally, this last spring, we booked tickets for Labor Day in New York City on Broadway to finally see the Broadway musical Hamilton, and we went. And, you know, I told you, we, we had memorized the, the soundtrack. So part of us, Liz and I were talking on the way, and part of us thought, you know, there probably won't be any of those kind of jolts because we know the thing so well. We know every word in the whole score, right? So it'll probably be just, isn't that great? We get to see how it looks on, we were so wrong. We wept the whole time, but the one part that got us the very most, the one part that laid us low and had us sobbing in our seat was one we couldn't have imagined when we heard the soundtrack. It's in the song, uh, Quiet Uptown. You see, Alexander Hamilton is estranged from his wife because in his life, as one of the founding fathers, he had a lurid affair which he then tried to explain to the public and made it much more public. So his wife is now shamed 
instead of it being this secret affair that gets put aside. And then his son Philip tries to defend the family's honor and gets in a duel and is killed. So he's had an affair, he's made it public, and he's prompted the death of his son. You can imagine that puts strain on a marriage. So in this scene, the song is meditative about how they're now living the uptown. And they're, they're walking, but they're walking a little separate. And they're doing their things, but they're doing them a little separate. And then there comes a moment when Eliza's here and Alexander's here. And the music goes into a major key, finally. And she reaches her hand and touches his. And the background song is, forgiveness. Can you imagine forgiveness? And the face of God appeared right there. And it does every time people who aren't supposed to come together, come together. Friends, We, as Christian folk, in this time of polarization and enmity and community breakdown, we get to be the face of God when we welcome people that we just by no rights should be welcoming. We get to be the face of God in a world that more than ever needs the face of God when we reach out our hands and touch and sing forgiveness out loud in what we do. If God had a face, what would it look like? Would it look like us? the world would stop. Amen? Amen.